You're listening to audio from Mountain View Church, located in Murphy, North Carolina. If you'd like more information, you can find us at www.mtnvu.org or on Instagram and Facebook at Mountain View Church NC. I'm one of the pastors here at Mountain View, and uh, every week um, it is my joy and privilege to welcome you and to say if this is your very first time with us, uh, we're really glad you're here. And we hope the service is an encouragement to you. If you will, fill out a connection card for us, as Ron and Diane said in the announcement video. And just hold on to it and give it to someone out in the connection uh, area, outside actually on the porch. And they'll give you a gift bag. It's just our small way of saying thank you for being here this morning. Well, if you are new to Mountain View, it is our typical practice to just walk verse by verse through books of the Bible here. And we are in the middle of Ephesians, and so I invite you to take out your Bible and turn to chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 18 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, um, there are several underneath the seats in front of you. Uh, Open one of those up so you can follow along with us. It's always helpful, I think, to have the scriptures in front of you so that you can uh, see where we are and uh, what God might want to say to us through his word. Well, have you ever read a book or watched a movie that told the same story from multiple perspectives? That's what Ephesians chapter 2 is. It's the story of the power of God at work toward us in Christ told from two different vantage points. If verses 1 to 10 told the story of how God's power brought us from death to life. Verses 11 through 18 tell the story of how God's power brought us home from exile. Same story about the same God who overcame every obstacle in Christ Jesus to rescue us from sin, from the power of the devil, and from the magnetic pull of the world. Same story, different perspectives, still amazing. Both portraits take us right back to the very beginning of Scripture, to the Garden of Eden, in fact, and help us understand exactly what salvation is. When Adam and Eve sinned, they experienced death. They experienced death because they had chosen to trust the voice of the serpent rather than the voice of their creator. They had eaten the poisonous fruit of distrust and disobedience. That sin not only led to death, however, it also led to separation. Adam and Eve could no longer live with God. They had been created to dwell with him, but because of God's goodness and God's purity, and because of their sinfulness, God's holiness posed a threat to them because they were no longer good. So God, in an act of judgment and mercy, exiled them from the Garden of Eden, and humanity has been wayward and wandering ever since. The wilderness 
tabernacle, which we talked a good bit about during our time in the book of Exodus, was the very first sign in the Bible that God intended to bring humanity home. It was a demonstration, both of God's desire to dwell with humanity and of the primary obstacle that stood in the way, our sin. Access was granted, but access was limited, and access was dangerous. It was more than a sign, though. It was a map. Encoded in the furniture and the fabric and the priestly personnel and the animal sacrifices was a message about how God would one day pave the way through the blood sacrifice of his son for humanity to return home, to return to his presence. Ephesians 2, 11 through 18, celebrates that story. And this is what the Apostle Paul writes. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Lord, bless the very simple reading and hearing of your word this morning. Grant us ears to hear and a heart receptive to what you would say to how you might say it, and to what you require of us in light of what you say. We ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So at one time, you and I were not only dead in trespasses and sins, according to what Paul writes here, we were also separated from God. We were alone. We had no purpose in the present 
We had no hope for the future. We were on the outside looking in. We had no share in the people or the promises of God. We were lifeless, we were homeless, and we were aimless. And all of this, as Paul says, because we were far off. Apart from the intervening power of God, this is the relational reality of our lost condition. In fact, Paul uses five devastating phrases to describe it in verse 12. He says, remember that at one time you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We might summarize those five phrases with two brief sentences of our own. Estranged from God and estranged from one another. That's what sin has done to humanity. Now we see the evidence of both of these things all around us. People are grasping for an ever-elusive sense of identity. Apart from God, we simply don't know who we are. People are grasping at an ever-elusive sense of purpose. Apart from God, we simply don't know what we're meant to do. People are grasping at an ever-elusive sense of satisfaction. Apart from God, we simply don't know what real contentment is. People are grasping for an ever-elusive sense of belonging. Like square pegs trying to fit into round holes, we're always searching for connection. Rarely realizing that our search is symptomatic of a deeper disconnect. Our separation, our alienation, our estrangement from God. Every longing for deep relational connection, every relational disappointment, and every lonely ache is a faint echo of the vast distance that exists between us and God. Apart from Him, we are far off. We have more friends on Facebook, more followers on Instagram, and more contacts in our phone than we can possibly keep track of. But at one point or another, all of us feel the ache of loneliness. Apart from Christ, 
we are far off. We come to church and we feel so out of place. God seems far away and so do other people. We wish we had real friends, but we don't even know where to start apart from Christ. We are far off. Churches split. Marriages crumble. Parents leave and never come home. Children rebel. Siblings disagree about something and end up not speaking to one another for decades. Communities break down. Friendships crash and burn. Children spend years in the foster care system and exit that system never having found a forever family. The elderly spend their remaining years in nursing homes, many of them seldom receiving a visit from friends or loved ones apart from Christ, we are far off. You and I feel these things. Personal. Powerfully. And often very deeply at times. An internal indicator that every one of us knows that something is so relationally broken with humanity, something is so relationally broken inside of us that we cannot mend it. Apart from him, we are far There is a vast distance greater than the span of the known universe. We can't traverse it. We can't decrease it. And we can't mend it. I believe the Apostle Paul knew this well too. Otherwise, he wouldn't have written the words in front of us. He knew something of this estrangement firsthand. After all, he had walked the streets of Athens. He had walked the streets of Ephesus. He had walked the streets of Corinth, and he had walked the streets of other cities, and he saw the idolatry firsthand. The evidence of humanity's estrangement from the true and living God were all around them. He also knew how deeply the Jews hated the Gentiles and how deeply the Gentiles despised the Jews. And at one time, I am absolutely confident that he felt that hatred too. No doubt he's writing from experience. As one who used to look down on non-Jews, as the uncircumcision. The evidence of humanity's estrangement from one another was all around them. And once he came to Christ, he realized that he himself 
had been estranged from God his entire life. In spite of the fact that for the better part of his life, he had been fervently committed to obeying God's law. Perhaps this is why Paul felt such heartache for his own people, the Jews. Paul knew very well that the law of God could not bridge the chasm between God and humanity. It could not bring us home to God. In the end, the law actually only made the problem worse. Now that's not because God's law is bad, it's because the human heart is. Take circumcision, for instance, which Paul mentions in verse 11. God intended that to be a physical sign to set the nation of Israel apart from other peoples. Why? God wanted them to be a different sort of people in order to show the nations around them what God was like and to summon those nations to discover and experience for themselves what life with the true and living God is like. But Israel became proud of the things that set them apart. And Israel began to define themselves by the things that set them apart. And Israel began to look down upon and to exclude other peoples based on the things that set them apart. In Paul's day, another of the emblems of that exclusion had become the temple. There were four levels of access to Herod's temple. There was the court of the Gentiles at the outer edges. There was then the court of the women, which is as far as Jewish women could go. Then there was the court of the priests where Jewish men could go and where all of the sacrifices were made. And then there was the temple proper which contained the most holy place into which only the high priest could go and only that once a year. Non-Jews could go no further than the court of the Gentiles. In fact, there were warning signs written in both Greek and Latin and set into the nearly five-foot wall that extended all the way around the temple. Signs like this one, which was discovered in the late 1800s that forbade foreigners from going any further, not on penalty of prosecution, but on penalty of death. In other words, the Jewish people 
had the ability to immediately execute any non-Jew who went past that point. By the way, this courtyard of the Gentiles was where the money changers had set up shop when Jesus kindly showed them the door. He was furious that those who were far off had been essentially forgotten by God's people. That his father's house was no longer a house of prayer for all the nations. Paul knew those signs and that entire temple complex very, very well. In fact, it was a temple controversy that finally got Paul arrested in Jerusalem. If you want to read about that incident later, flip back to Acts chapter 21, verses 27 through 36. Some people had seen Paul around the city with an Ephesian Gentile named Trophimus, and they had accused Paul of bringing Trophimus into the temple and defiling the place. Luke writes in that passage that the entire city was stirred up as a result of the accusation, such that the uproar had to be quelled by a garrison of Roman soldiers who ended up taking the Apostle Paul into custody. Brothers and sisters, I have to imagine when I read this text that this very incident was in the forefront of Paul's mind as he wrote to the Ephesians about how at one time they had been far off. But this apostle to the Gentiles this former Jewish Gentile hater knew that wasn't the case anymore for himself, for them, or for us. In Christ, according to what Paul writes in verse 13, we who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of his perfect sacrifice. In Christ, we who were once separated and estranged and alienated from God, have been brought near through the blood of his sacrifice. Now the only way to understand and truly appreciate what Paul is saying in verses 13 to 18 is to keep a picture of Herod's temple in the forefront of our minds as we read. When Paul says, that you and I have gone from being far off 
to being brought near through the blood of Christ, there's no doubt in my mind that the Apostle Paul is picturing our movement from the court of the Gentiles into the most holy place. Now, you and I can't quite wrap our minds around how radical it would have been for a Jewish man in that day and time to write such words about Gentiles. Is it any wonder that the gospel that Paul preached got him into so much trouble with his countrymen? It should not be. And yet, this is the very gospel that he preached. That the way back into God's presence is open to all. Jew and Gentile alike who come through the blood of Christ. Paul essentially summarizes what this means at the beginning of verse 14 when he writes, for he himself is our peace. The Lord Jesus overcomes every relational obstacle. He heals the separation He heals the alienation. He heals the estrangement. He heals the hopelessness. He is God with us and God for us. And through the shed blood of his sacrifice, you and I who were once far off, who were merely outsiders looking in, have been taken by the heart and taken by the hand, and we've been brought near even into the Holy of Holies. In the remainder of our text, Paul unpacks exactly what it means for the Lord Jesus to be our peace. He says, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What do you think is in the forefront of Paul's mind when he's writing these words? That wall with those signs on it. And his friend Trophimus that was unable to go any further into the temple complex with him. Paul writes that Christ has united Jew and Gentile and in his flesh has demolished the dividing wall of hostility. Essentially, within the text, Paul makes the case that the evidence of the power of God at work among the people of God is seen in the reconciliation of Jewish and Gentile Christians. In Paul's mind, God has taken a sledgehammer, 
to the wall, forbidding foreigners from entering the temple. And through the broken body of Christ, that wall has come tumbling down. So much so that Paul can write that there are no longer two separate groups of people. There are no longer Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. There is no longer the circumcision and the uncircumcision. There aren't insiders and outsiders. There is now one new humanity in Christ Jesus walking hand in hand into the very presence of God. Now, in Paul's day, the healing of the Jew-Gentile divide it essentially was an incredible testimony to the power of God at work within the church. That healing of that divide, however, doesn't necessarily have the significance today among us as it did then. However, the idea of the unity of the church across other divides remains an essential evidence of the power of God at work among the people of God. An evidence that is frankly and sadly lacking in the church so very often whether it is racial division or denominational division or division over other things like spiritual gifts or the end times or the color of the carpet. Christians often find it easier to fight against one another than to fight with one another arm in arm against the powers of darkness. At one time or another, churches have fought over such things as the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Not this one. <laughs> Justin, it's okay. over whether or not to put stall dividers in the women's restroom, over which picture of Jesus to hang in the lobby, over whether or not the church should allow deviled eggs at church meals, And over whether or not those meals should be called potlucks or pot blessings. All true stories. Very often, brothers and sisters, in the context of the local church, that is centered on the Lord Jesus Christ, the church that wants to move forward and attend to his kingdom business. The devil will do whatever he can to wreck relationships. 
to dismantle the unity that is ours in Christ. You and I have to remember as we keep our eyes on Christ that it is Christ who restores and reconciles those relationships. And the local church is to be a place where all kinds of relationships are being regularly reconciled, restored, and made new. A place where people are being restored to God and people are being restored to one another. A place where unity in Christ is cherished and protected. A place where separation and alienation and estrangement and hopelessness all meet their match in the Lord Jesus Christ and his welcoming, hospitable, and gracious people. Now here's the good news. This unity isn't something we have to produce. It's something that's been given to us. The Apostle Paul writes that in Christ Jesus, we've been made one through the blood of his perfect sacrifice on our behalf. Whatever walls of hostility existed before Christ came to define us have come tumbling down so that the most important thing about all of us and the most important thing about this church body is Christ. Christ has made us one. This unity is, however, something that you and I must be eager to maintain. In the second half of Ephesians, where Paul begins to apply things that he's talking about in the first half, he actually begins with these words in chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He then goes on to remind us there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. The point being, brothers and sisters, if Jesus unites us and he does, lesser things should never divide us. Too many churches over the past several years have suffered all kinds of division and related heartache 
over things that seem to me as silly as now, silly now as carpet. Remember, remember, remember the division over masks? That, that wasn't so long ago, was it? Why in the world would we allow something as silly as that to tear us apart when we have Christ in common? Y'all, that is world, that is worldly. That is worldly. If Jesus unites us and he does, we ought not harbor bitterness and unforgiveness against one another. We should move toward one another with something of an urgent eagerness to repair any relational breach whatever it is. If Jesus unites us and he does, we ought not use our words to tear others down. We ought to use our words to build others up. If Jesus unites us and he does, we shouldn't be looking for ways to get ahead of one another. We should be looking for ways to serve one another. If Jesus unites us and he does, then seeking to grow closer to one another should be more than an event on the calendar. It should actually be a way of life. In other words, according to what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 1 to 6, there should be an urgent eagerness among us to do more than make an appearance once a week on a Sunday morning. An appearance, by the way, that has all of you looking to me rather than to one another. In Christ, our hearts should long for the opposite of estrangement, the opposite of alienation, the opposite of separation, the opposite of hope. Lessness. In the local church, our hearts should long for relational reconciliation. We should long for relational connection. We should long for relational depth. And not just for ourselves, but for everyone we encounter who seems to be on the outside looking in. Brothers and sisters, the spirit of our church should always be in Christ. Outsiders become insiders here. Having once been far off, how can we want anything less for those who are still far off than to see them be brought near? by the blood of Christ. The Lord Jesus not only repaired our relationships with one another according to what the Apostle Paul goes on to say. The Lord Jesus reconciled us to God. In verse 16 he writes, as our peace 
Through his broken body, Jesus died so that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So through his son, God has overcome the great obstacle of our sin, which separated us from him, and God's made a way through his son's perfect sacrifice to welcome us back into his presence, back into life-giving and life-receiving relationship with him. Through the Lord Jesus, God has overcome the separation, the alienation, the estrangement, and the hopelessness that characterized our lives before we knew him. Brothers and sisters, God has brought us home from exile. He's thrown open the doors of the garden and he's invited us to feast on Christ, the tree of life, and to experience wholeness, harmony, and completeness in him. That's what it means to say that Christ is our peace. Paul summarizes the entire story this way in Ephesians 2.18. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, I don't know if there is any way for me to fully get across to you what this verse means. This verse, this is the high point of the first two chapters of the letter. Like, this is the summit atop the mountain. This is the pinnacle result of the power of God at work toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the culmination of all of the spiritual blessings that are ours in him. You and I, who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We've been brought into the very presence of the Father, into the most holy place in the heavenly places. Picture it with your minds. We've been allowed to cross through the court of the Gentiles, through the court of the women, through the court of the priests, and through the curtain embroidered with cherubim, and we have no reason to fear. Though God is as holy and as good and as pure as he ever was, there is no danger. Through Christ, we have been made holy. Remember how Paul began 
this letter to the saints who are in Ephesus. Access is no longer limited to one person one day a year through Christ, our great high priest. We've been carried into the very presence of the Father where we have been given a seat with Christ. Paul says we have access. Paul intends that little word to be an incredibly life-giving word. It was used in Paul's day of someone who was granted an audience with the emperor. You and I have been granted access to the emperor of the universe through his son and by the power of his spirit. You did notice the thoroughly Trinitarian nature of this statement, didn't you? And this access is enjoyed by all of God's people. Notice how Paul emphasizes that fact when he writes, for through him, we both, Jew and Gentile, together, have equal access in one spirit to the Father. Let me say again, this access is enjoyed by all of God's people, Jew and Gentile. Man and woman, rich and poor, young and old, seasoned saint and new believer, those who are rejoicing today, those who are weeping today, those who are confident and those who have questions, those who experienced victory over temptation yesterday and you who did not. Here, separation alienation, estrangement, and hopelessness are swallowed up by the Prince of Peace. In place of these, you and I, we receive a warm reception. The confidence that we are known and loved by our heavenly father and the guarantee that because Christ is ours and we are his, we will always be welcome in his presence. Always. In the kingdom of God, my brothers and sisters, there are no second class citizens. Paul says that both Jews and Gentiles have equal access to God and Christ and by the Holy Spirit. And you want to know what else? There is no greater gospel privilege than this. And it is a privilege we all share. This is the privilege of adoption. It's the privilege of a small child 
who is always free to wander into the king's throne room at any moment. And no matter who the king is talking to or what the king is doing, the king will forever turn his attention to his child. That's what it means to have access. That's where everything has been going from the very moment we stepped foot in the book of Ephesians. Through Christ, every obstacle to our return home to the Father has been overcome. And the doors of his palace have been thrown wide open. And our father through his son and by his spirit says, my friends, come on in. Come on in. My home is now your home. Man. Now the question I've had this week is why in the world do we not avail ourselves of this access more? Why in the world aren't we a more prayerful people? Why in the world do we take conversation with the living God for granted? Why in the world aren't we more genuinely joyful? Because no matter when it is, where we are, or who we're with, we have access through the Son and by the power of the Spirit. I want to invite the worship team to come and lead us in our closing song this morning. And I think it's a fitting song to sing.